It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder. If you haven't done so already, please go back and listen to our last two episodes, the first and the second part of our look at the 2017 murders at Nadia Fish and Chicken in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago. As a refresher, on the night before the killings at the restaurant, a man named Jerry Jacobs was gunned down in the South Shore. The next afternoon, a gunman killed four young men at the Nadia restaurant. Hours later, someone murdered a couple in their car in an area not far from the earlier murders. The police quickly arrested Jerry Jacobs' 19-year-old son, Maurice Harris, claiming that he had killed the four men at the restaurant in retaliation for the death of his father. And then they went to the media. Here is Maurice's attorney, Ian Barney. Yes, right after 
uh, Maurice was arrested, the Chicago Police Department held a press conference with, I believe, then Superintendent Eddie Johnson, and uh, you know, posted his face all over TV, uh, painted him as guilty, um, you know, laid out this purported motive for the killing, um, tried to paint him as a as a really bad guy. Got into his uh, juvenile record, which I thought was way out of bounds. And, you know, all in all, made their best effort to um, to prove him guilty before he even had a chance to go to court. Is that kind of a trial by media um, a common occurrence in Chicago, or was this something that you were surprised by? Um, I was not surprised by it. Um, is it a common occurrence? I wouldn't say it's necessarily a common occurrence, um, but you do have what is sometimes referred to as you know, heater cases or media cases where press conferences like that can happen. Um, in this case, I wasn't particularly surprised because one, it was a big case because you you had a quadruple homicide, four individuals were, were killed in one shooting, which is... Um, Obviously not uh, something that happens too often, but also it happened um, during a short period of time where there were a lot of shootings, a lot of murders, and um, in my view, a lot of pressure on public officials and probably the Chicago Police Department to uh, stem the tide, uh, as one might say, because things seem to be... um, kind of spinning out of control. There was actually a double homicide that same day that occurred at about 11.30 p.m. This quadruple homicide happened um, at around 3.30 p.m. And there were other murders that happened right around that same time in the preceding days. And I'm not sure if there were any that happened after that, but I would be surprised to learn that there were. So um, it was... You know, that was the whole thing, the whole kind of um, period of, of days was, was newsworthy. And this particular event, I think, was representative of maybe a larger feeling that things were getting out of control more so than usual. Of course, the police weren't the only ones to feel pressure. Uh, there was a uh, cliche that uh, the most stressful thing for a criminal defense attorney to have is a client who they know is innocent. And so I'm curious, what kind of a personal toll did taking this case and working this case uh, take on you? I guess I'd say there's some truth to that. Um, and I think what's what's maybe interesting is that people usually think it's the opposite, that um, and maybe clients even think this, that if somebody's innocent, it, it should be easier. And in some ways, it, it's actually harder because, you know, you, you want to prove they're innocent. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do, particularly when the state kind of holds the cards at the beginning of the process, which they do. And if they didn't, they wouldn't charge you. So, yeah, it took a toll just kind of from a mental standpoint, just you live with, you know, the case pended for four years, you live with that for four years, thinking 
just constantly thinking, you know, what more can I do? What can we investigate? What's, what's this witness going to say? Who was who out there that could help us with this case? And I, and I would just call people and ask them that, hey, who do you know out there who could maybe point me to somebody who could, who could help me? Um, because the stakes are obviously high, and when you have somebody who you truly believe is innocent, I think that there's um, a strong impetus to make sure you get it right for them. And that's not to say that you're not doing everything you can for every client you have. Obviously, you are, but I think there's just a, maybe a, an extra motivating factor if you, if you truly believe the person uh, hadn't done it. So. I would, I guess I would just say, yeah, it was probably some added stress. I wanted to, to do right by Maurice. I wanted to make sure I got the right result for him. I, I didn't think he did it, and I didn't want him to be sitting in custody at, at all. So I, you know, I wanted to make sure that I got it right. But how do you get it right and save your client after the police department does its best to convince the whole city that he is a murderer? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is In the Shadow of Nadia, The Discovery. Like I said, I would get calls all the time from random numbers, people who would have just the strangest things to tell me, um, you know, who they thought that, that and why they thought this person did it. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was just conjecture, conjecture, but, you know, I took every phone call and I followed up on every meeting uh, on the hope that something would pan out. And some of it did. Um, so, you know, it, it worked out. I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad people were calling me. And I don't know how they got my number, but I'm glad they were calling me. Um, but one of the witnesses who contacted me—I don't even know how she got my contact information—but she happened to be an eyewitness who was never interviewed by the police. Um, and she was present right across the street from Nadia's when the shooting happened. Um, she told us about how. Um, 
the shooting happened and she kind of ducked and hid um, next to or under a, a picnic table type of thing. Uh, but while she was laying down, she could see the shooter who had actually chased one of the victims. And, and that, that was one of the important things about her statement was um, she knew some details about the crime that weren't publicly available that she wouldn't have known from watching the news. So she gave us this version of what she saw from her perspective, the shooter you know, shooting somebody, chasing somebody else down, then running back in another direction. And um, she, according to her, saw the shooter's face. She doesn't know who the person was, but she knows it wasn't Maurice. And one of the reasons she knows it wasn't Maurice is because she saw Maurice's face on TV when they posted a, uh, a story about the news and they posted his um photograph of mugshot I think and she didn't know Maurice personally and she didn't really have any um, stake in the case other than you know kind of telling us what she saw so that was um, another important piece of evidence that um, that we were able to get and that was kind of you know was um, it was you know fortuitous that she decided to pick up the phone calmly but you know, that wasn't the end of the story. We ended up having to, you know, obviously get her statement, which was not easy, kind of chasing her around for weeks to to get her, find her, and um, actually get her to sit down and give a, an investigator a real statement that she um, that she signed. So that was a that was a big deal. This new witness's story was important, but the ideal witness in any case, of course, is video footage from a security camera. And that was one of the things that we we tried to do. I mean, there were security cameras um, all over. I shouldn't say all over, but uh, there's businesses in that area, and there's and there's apartment buildings in that area, and some of them have security cameras. So you know, one thing I did is I just drove around looking for security cameras and, and <clears throat> contacting building owners to try to get security camera footage. And, um, I don't think I was successful, and in fact, the police actually did that. Anyway, they canvassed and they got a lot of security footage. Um, they got some security footage that I thought was actually, you know, pretty useful, pretty interesting. Cars driving, you know, the wrong way down a one-way street just after the shooting. And I don't know if these are people, just citizens trying to get out of there or, or somebody involved in the shooting fleeing the area. But so there was a, quite a bit of security footage, video footage in general from CTA buses and um, businesses and apartment buildings, private homeowners, things like that. So... It was there was quite a bit of that, and there was a lot of stuff to go through. A lot of stuff to go through. The efforts of the investigators paid off, and they found the footage they wanted. Almost. There was a video of the shooting. There was a video um, of uh, from a security camera facing a direction where the shooter eventually ran. Unfortunately, it didn't catch the whole suspect. You could only see like from the waist down, if even that, of the person. So you can see their legs. <laughs> That's it. Um, you know, interestingly, there was a camera in the entryway to Nadia's. And it was on. It just wasn't recording. It was live. It was a live feed. And for some reason, it had, it was, I think it was supposed to record to the cloud, but there's something to that effect or, or, or some record to, you know, a device. I'm not sure. But, um, it wasn't recording. It was only running live or something like that. So, um, you know, had that thing been set up properly, there would be no question about who committed the crime. 
but perhaps the footage the police did have would be enough to exonerate Maurice. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. There was some video footage of, of the, the uh, shooting, and you couldn't see the shooter, but you could 
kind of get a glimpse of the lower half of the shooter's body running away from the scene. And um, in our mind, it just, it couldn't have been Maurice because Maurice had um, been the victim of a shooting when he was just 14 years old, as I think had a kind of collateral damage of a shooting as he was standing at a bus stop and had been shot in the kind of hip or buttocks area and had suffered nerve, nerve damage into his foot as a result had um, dropped foot because of it. So he didn't, couldn't run with a, with a clean gait. He had a limp, so it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have fit um, uh, that it was him, just based on the video, a person who's running uh, pretty quickly without a limp. So that was another uh, important piece of evidence that we were, we were able to kind of get those medical records that collaborated uh, that that Maurice had suffered this injury and had dropped. Maurice's defense also found more traditional witnesses to back up his claims of innocence. We had numerous alibi witnesses who um, were willing to come to court at the time of trial and testify that they were with Maurice at the time that the shooting occurred. And... Um, you know, you always have to have a skeptical eye when talking with witnesses, in my view, because people always have motive, interest, or bias. Um, but we had multiple witnesses, and they were all interviewed separately, and they all gave substantially similar accounts, including on small details that would be hard to fabricate and coordinate. So we thought we had a pretty strong alibi. Um, these were, these were good witnesses in our view. So that would have been kind of the initial thrust of any defense would have been he was actually someplace else when the murder occurred. And one of the interesting things about the alibi was um, multiple witnesses who he was with specifically recall actually learning about the quadruple homicide because, you know, they're on social media or whatever. And this stuff comes through on these Twitter accounts and like Spot News, for example. And I'm not sure if it was Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but um, there's these social media accounts and and they kind of um, spit this information out about ongoing criminal activity in Chicago, it's particular about shootings, real time. And multiple witnesses who we talked to actually remember this happening, this happening, this receiving this information as it's coming in, learning that one person was shot, then two people were shot, and then you know, twenty minutes later, get an update that it was three people, and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, they remember everybody kind of being in, I won't say in shock, but just kind of like really surprised because they, you know, this is not something that happens every day. So perhaps that's why it sticks in their memory. But, um, you know, they recall Maurice being there. They recall actually learning the news about the shooting. Um, so they, I thought they had pretty compelling stories when it came to supporting Maurice's alibi that he wasn't um, at the scene. And then also we had cell phone evidence that would have corroborated where he was. There was some debate about, about which phone was the right phone as far as um, the phone that was Maurice's and stuff like that. But there was cell phone records that, <clears throat> you know, they do this triangulation thing where they see, try to, you know, 
not pinpoint necessarily where you are based on phone calls, but at least put you in a specific area based on cell phone towers and which towers your phone's connected to and things like that. And uh, cell phone records for, for Maurice's phone were actually consistent with him being in the area where um, the alibi witnesses said he was, as opposed to the area where the restaurant was. So that was another um, critical piece of evidence in my mind, um, in part, again, because you have witnesses and um, you know that the state is going to try to expose any motive, interest, or bias that, that those witnesses might have. But we, um, having cell phone records that corroborated the alibi, I think gave uh, the alibi witnesses some extra credibility. Um, as far as other witnesses, you know, I was, this was a very odd case in that I was getting um, calls out of the blue about this case from random people who, who wanted to help because they knew whether or not they were there, they knew from whatever they knew on the street, whatever people were saying, they knew that Maurice didn't do it. And so they would call me and they would try to give me leads and say, hey, you should check this out. Or, hey, you know, I heard that it could have been, you know, someone else with some other motive. A lot of the stuff we, we would try to run down and either it was impossible because information was too vague or, um, you know, maybe it was a little bit of a dead end in terms of it was interesting, but it, it wasn't the type of thing that you could, you know, present in court. Um, but some of the some of the stuff ended up being fruitful. Uh, we tracked down another witness who was also in the area when the shooting happened. He was down a block and. Uh, he said he kind of was outstanding outside when the shooting happened and he, he couldn't identify who these shooters were, but he saw the people walking up and down the block in front of where the shooting happened just before it happened. And he knows who Maurice Harris is because Maurice is from that neighborhood and this person actually knows Maurice's mom. And he said it was not Maurice Harris. So we were able to track down some witnesses like that. Um, and, and I, again, they were, in my view, they were credible witnesses. In a criminal case, there is a process called discovery in which the prosecution is obliged to share with the defense the information and evidence they have uncovered during the course of their investigation. So, somewhat ironically, a few of the most helpful things Barney learned actually came from the prosecution. Then, as discovery went on, we got the initial police report, so we started to get some additional information that was um, pretty interesting. One of the things that we got um, was information about an individual who was a suspect in a, another murder, a totally different murder in a totally different part of the city, um, who uh, had confessed to committing the murder um, that he was basically a suspect in, um, or at least gave some type of statement. I shouldn't, I don't know if confessed is, is maybe too strong of a word. I, I don't specifically recall exactly what he said, but I know that he gave a statement regarding that murder that he was a suspect in. And in his statement, he actually um, gave information that was exculpatory to our case in that he said that he was a witness at the uh, quadruple homicide that happened at Nadia's and that um, Maurice Harris was not the person that did it, that they had the wrong guy. So that was kind of the the first big piece of evidence that we were able to get that uh, indicated that that Maurice was not the person who committed that crime. And of course, that's what we had believed 
uh, from the beginning. It didn't make a whole lot of sense if in our mind, having known Maurice and having had a previous relationship with Maurice, it didn't make a lot of sense that, that he would have been the person to commit that crime. So that was the first big piece of evidence. And, um, it was, um, you know, it kind of came out of left field. You don't see that too often where somebody gives a statement in a totally or at least somewhat unrelated uh, case and they're a suspect in that case and they and they give information exculpatory to, um, you know, somebody else who's got a pending, pending case. So that was, um, that was a big deal for our case. And, you know, that was, that was separate from our investigation that came through um, discovery with the state. But of course, Barney and his team kept up with their own efforts. We continued our investigation. Um, we were able, I think we talked about the fact that we were able to speak with some of the eyewitnesses, a couple of the eyewitnesses who um, we felt like uh, walked back their identification a little bit, um, at least a little bit, maybe maybe even more than that. I think one kind of recanted totally. Um, and then as the case went on, we, we got another kind of tip, so to speak, uh, from somebody who was in Cook County Jail who um, reached out to us. I can't remember how they got in touch with us. I don't know if it was through our client, through a third party. I just don't re- recall. But um, this person who was in Cook County, who was um, had their own criminal case pending, came into uh, some information that was helpful to us. And they kind of clued us in on it. And uh, specifically, they had a conversation on a recorded jail call with um, one of the witnesses in our case who, um, in so many words, admitted on the jail call that um, she may not have actually seen the person who did the shooting, which was contrary to um, either what she told the police or what was in the case reports. So that was a a huge piece of evidence um, in part because, you know, one of the things that any lawyer does who's advocating for one side of a case, one party in a case is you try to, you know, get at people's motive, interest, bias, um, find some reason why they may have said something, um, even if it wasn't true. So, you know, they may say, Oh, well, this witness only said this because, they're scared or they were intimidated or they didn't want to be involved in the case or, or something like that. If we would have gotten, um, you know, a statement from our witness on the street, but this is a case where someone was on a recorded call talking to someone that they trusted, didn't either realize or care that they were being recorded and were kind of caught in them. Uh, you know, I guess some, some type of moment of, of vulnerability where, uh, they told the truth that they, you know, that they may not have actually seen the shooting. So, that was um, that was a, a really big piece of evidence for us, and we were able to get the recorded call. Um, the same person who kind of gave us that tip uh, gave us another tip that a family member of that witness um, had spoken with another inmate on another recorded jail call where um, uh, the family member kind of corroborated that the witness actually didn't see the shooting. So those were two really in our minds, powerful pieces of evidence that had corroborated the investigation that we had already been doing um, with the alibi witnesses, another witness who um, was down the block who, who said they didn't see Maurice at the scene. 
I was curious about some of the witnesses you mentioned who recanted or said they weren't even there. Did you ever get any insight into why they made up stories and identified Maurice? Well, it wasn't that they weren't there. It just, I think um, there was, I think I know what you're, you're talking about when you say they weren't there. There was two statements that conflicted where one person said they were, you know, inside the restaurant and based on their observations, uh, the other witness who also said that they were present um, in almost the same location when the shooting occurred, based on, on these two statements, they both couldn't be telling 100% of the truth because um, based on both each story, the other person wasn't there. Um, or the, They didn't see the other person. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know why those statements were crossed up in the way that they were. Um, I don't know if, you know, someone was fabricating, somebody remembers something differently from somebody else. Uh, sometimes that happens. So, you know, why, why were these witness statements changing? Why was there recantation? I don't know. That's a hard question to answer, to be honest. I mean, I don't know what would have caused um, someone to identify Maurice if they didn't actually see him. But my position is that that happened. Um, I absolutely believe that happened. Um, I think that, you know, I guess what I can go back to is the fact that uh, I know that this was a, um, a case that was big in the news, that there were a lot of rumors going around the neighborhood about who was involved. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the reason, but uh, that it happened in this case, but sometimes people think um, or are led to believe that somebody... Uh, that person A is the person who committed the crime, then, you know, they're either willing to go along with that story or convince themselves that that's the person who did it or, or whatever the case is. So, um, you know, or, or maybe they thought Maurice was involved in some way, even if he didn't do the shooting, that he was involved some way because the rumor was that this whole thing was in retaliation for his father's murder. Um, so I think that, you know, in my view, that would have been a big motivating factor, but I can't ascribe any particular motivation to uh, any particular witness because I just, I don't know them that in their head. Um, and I don't know what, you know, I don't, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what they saw and what they didn't see. All I know is that some of these things just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Can Barney make sense of it in time to save the client he is convinced is innocent? We will have more next week. Our next episode will also include a discussion of crucial DNA evidence found in a vehicle connected to the shooting. Thanks again to Ian Barney for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.